All right, welcome again to Theology on Tap. Uh, this is our summer series, Navigating Current Culture. Our talk tonight is on feminism, women in the church. And our speaker is the Director of Human Dignity and Life Initiatives in the Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. She engages in scholarship that strives to recover the concept of human dignity and imagination. Uh, her writing has appeared in America Magazine, Catholic Catalog, and Alatea. She holds a Master's of Divinity degree from the University of Notre Dame. Um, please join me in welcoming Jess Keating. So thank you for um, having me tonight. It's really a pleasure to be with you. Um, when Sean and the team first approached me with this topic, I was wondering, like, what do I have to contribute to a conversation about feminism in the church? Um, growing up, I was a bit of a tomboy. I liked to spend my days outside digging up locusts with my kindergarten boyfriend, Hunter. Yes, I still remember his name. And I wanted to be the first woman to play Major League Baseball. And sometimes I was like, why couldn't you have made me a man, God, so I could play Major League Baseball? I didn't really realize that I was terrible at playing baseball. Like, my ability did not match my love. Um, and in high school, I uh, was voted class clown. I fall a lot. There are people in this room who can attest to that. Um, by college, I was quoting Gloria Steinem. Um, I, I, I'm not the most well-mannered person, and so when I think of feminine and feminine genius, those words have never felt like they've applied to me. So in other words, I, I've never felt stereotypically feminine. I, I've more identified with Sandra Bullock in Miss Congeniality before she gets the makeover and becomes elegant and beautiful and, po and poised and graceful. So these things aren't really ontologically in my being. Um, so where to start with a topic that is at once so large? There are at least three and a half billion people in the world who are like me in some essential way, um, and also so very particular. There's only one me, and there's only one you ever in the world in the history of mankind. So where can we sort of get a foothold? Well, I think to start, it's really important to clarify what the question we're asking is. Um, Pope Francis continues to call for greater roles of leadership for women in the church. And we often come to the conversation with very particular understandings of what leadership is and what uh, being feminine means. And so we sometimes think about leadership, I think a lot of us, I think I do this too, in terms of power and prestige and control. Um, and that is one form of leadership that is important that's not, that doesn't exhaust sort of the concept of leadership. So many people come to the discussion of discussion about women in the church with this idea of, I want to talk about uh, women becoming priests and the role of the clergy. And the clergy is a really important function in the church and in the leadership of our church. But this evening, I'd really like to invite us to consider the position that most of us here inhabit, which is that of the laity and the role of women's leadership in the laity. So you all have a handout on your table. Um, and I'd like to start with this quote from Gaudete et Exaltate. This is uh, Pope Francis. He says, I would stress, too, that the genius of women is seen in feminine styles of holiness. 
which are an essential means of reflecting God's holiness in this world. Indeed, in times when women tended to be most ignored or overlooked, the Holy Spirit raised up saints whose attractiveness produced new spiritual vigor and important reforms for the church. We can mention St. Hildegard of Biggin, St. Bridget, St. Catherine of Siena, St. Teresa of Avila, and St. Therese of Lisieux. But I think, too, of all those unknown or forgotten women who each in her own way sustained and transformed families and communities by the power of their witness. So Pope Francis here is uh, taking up language that John Paul II first used about the feminine genius um, in Mulieris Dignitatum. I'd like you at your tables, this can be icebreakers part two, to come up with a definition for what makes a woman a woman and for feminine styles of holiness. And the idea is that you will all agree on both of these questions at the end of the time I give you. So, ready and go. Okay, how did we do? Could we hear from a couple of groups how the process was? Okay, yeah, so we were talking about um, receptivity. We talked about Our Lady as sort of this model and archetype of woman, and so how um, necessarily that's associated with grace. Um, and our call to live into that. And then um, we talked about um, how woman is sort of inherently mother, um, whether or not she's bearing physical children. So um, yeah, just the, that reality of nurturing life. Great, thank you. And did you like come to that definition in the first like minute you were talking? No. Yeah, so it required, <laughs> yes, probably some conversation. Yep. Others? I saw a lot of talking, which is awesome. Thank you, sister, for your willingness to share with the group. Um, I heard a lot of like, but what about this? And what about that? And what about this person? And I think like this, this was meant to be hard um, and not um, giving itself to a simple answer. But the idea is, is that being a woman is both an interweaving of our historical contingent cultures, our faith, and our embodiment as women. So triangulating those three things. And I think, uh, Sister, you're exactly right. Grace has to be an essential part of any Christian's understanding of what it means to be a woman in the world. So I do know a three-year-old, however, who thinks that if you cut your hair short and you're a girl, you become a boy. So she has a very gender essentialist view based on hair. Um, so tonight, I'd like to do three things, three ways of thinking about gender in our own time. Um, I'd like to suggest that we receive really contradictory messages. On the one hand, from um, sort of a more liberal feminist perspective, which does have a good to offer us. Um, and then on the other hand, from media, which reinforces some really typical gender stereotypes. And then I'd like to, of course, turn to the church and look at her wisdom on this question of women in the church. So women in contemporary society, if you look at your handout, there is this picture of a family right there. Um, we tend to think in pretty extreme ways about gender, social norms, and, and the way people function in society today. We wonder about what is the relationship between nature and culture? Are they radically distinct? Are they the same? Are they somehow intertwined? We wonder about the nature of equality. 
What does equality mean? Does it mean absolute sameness? Or does it mean difference and um, equal dignity? We wonder about how gender functions in community contexts. And we tend to want gender um, to both simultaneously be very, very important and irrelevant. That's sort of like how the culture, I think, sees gender. And I think we're part of the culture, so many of us probably think about it in those terms, too. We want to both affirm and deny it. Gender's really important, but it's not really that important. And we want gender to mean everything, and we want it to mean nothing. Um, so if we use the image on our handout, we're going to uh, interpret this image according to two like different theories of gender. Um, the first is A, is gender constitutes functions. So this is sort of a, an essentialist view of gender, that your gender has a one-to-one -one relationship with how you ought to function in society. And there are sort of like liberal views of this and conservative views of this. Um, the conservative views tend to be um, um, what you see in the picture. And the liberal views tend to, to be like women are better than men and should separate themselves from men and start an island of just women where there can be sisterhood. Okay, so, so those are the extremes of gender essentialism. Um, but I want to look at this and, and look at um, what might be positive about a gender essentialist view that sees a correlation between gender and social function. Are there positives to that view that sees a direct relationship between your gender and your function in the home, in society? Yeah. Gives a structure to life for society. Gives a structure to life for society. Yeah. Yeah, it gives a sense of security of like, I know what I'm supposed to do, things aren't ambiguous. I can slide into this role. Any others? Yeah, so I think that there are actually a lot of positives to this model. Um, it recognizes an inherent difference between men and women, that being embodied woman and being an embodied man are two different ways of experiencing the world as a human person. Um, it recognizes that gender exists within a community. You'll notice this community is a family community. Now, they're not, we don't see an extended community, but we do see mother, father, children. We see that gender is linked to procreation, to having children. Um, it's clear and orderly and efficient. Uh, Stephen said it gives order to um, society, and it does. Um, there's an economy around the home, and it's easy to know what each person in this picture is supposed to do. You could like write a job description for the mother and father. Um, however, this, this model also has drawbacks. And what might some of the drawbacks be? Yeah. Yeah, it pigeonholes you. So like there's not really a consideration of the person's personal gifts and abilities, their desires in this relationship. What else? Yes, so it, the, it was, if infertility were an issue, that would put a lot of pressure on the couple or the man or the woman. Um, so it doesn't develop a sufficiently complex notion of functionality, of how men and women 
uh, relate to culture and society and to one another. Um, so it's critiqued by sort of the, the second wave feminist movement, um, critiques this model, uh, pointing out that natural biological realities, such as childbirth and motherhood, are being extended into historically contingent norms. This is the argument. Um, so think about the three-year-old girl who thinks short hair means you're a boy. Uh, they argue that gender roles are constructed and reproduced and used to maintain forms of dominance and power that benefit men. Okay, so this model, this idea that gender functions are socially constructed um, has a lot of different forms that we can't go into tonight. But in general, it emphasizes the way that social norms shape our understanding of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And they question this like flat correspondence between woman, you do this, man, you do this. So there are benefits to this model too. What are some benefits that you could see of this idea that gender is constructed? Yeah, so the answer was it allows more like back and forth movement across traditional gender roles. So if there's a woman who feels like really fulfilled in her work and a man who wants to stay home, this model allows for that kind of shifting back and forth. Okay, okay, um, yes, and that's absolutely right. So this is, it's a helpful critique even though it's not complete in itself because there are some serious drawbacks to this model, especially as it becomes sort of more radical, more, um, more extreme. So it tends to erase gender. Um, and a new kind of dualism creeps in uh, so that like, there's not a correspondence between our, our emotional and cognitive life and our bodies. So I am now just Keating, but being a woman has nothing to do with who I am. And that can be a big problem, especially, again, for women. So the body is abstracted from personal identity. And this leaves us with a really impoverished notion of gender. Um, and this is one of the problems, I think, that's um, embedded in, in certain forms of liberal feminism. It has this tendency to erase gender as a meaningful category for conversation. But it, it also allows gender to sort of reassert itself as normative elsewhere. Um, and this can happen in really insidious ways, especially for women. So the idea of sexual freedom um, that came about in the sexual revolution um, came in under the guise of like liberation, liberating women's bodies. They could be their true selves. They could be sexual actors in the public sphere. Um, but we're actually finding now that women are really unhappy with this arrangement. Uh, the more sexual partners a woman has, the higher her rate of depression. There doesn't seem to be that same correspondence for men. Um, we see women wanting to marry and not being able to find husbands. So there's an inequality in the marriage market because of the availability of sex. Um, we also see women having to sort of, maleness becomes the paradigm for entering the workforce. And what does that mean? That means like childless, uh, controlling one's fertility, um, so equity comes, or this type of equity comes at a price. Um, and so one of the you know, things that, that our culture is really fighting about right now is abortion. And uh, this is a, a double-edged sword because it has reinscribed gender hierarchy. Abortion does not benefit women. 
um, it benefits predominantly men, who it allows men not to take um, responsibility for children. It allows sex to become freer and, co and consequence-free. Um, it doesn't uh, promote commitment within a relationship and within marriage. So this has been, the idea of liberal feminism is really great in some ways, but it's sort of failed to deliver on the promises for, for women. Um, so I'd like to pivot now. We've looked at this image from two perspectives uh, to a way in which um, media tries to sort of bring together faith and, and our historical culture. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to take a look at a quote from Pope Benedict, which has nothing to do with women or men or feminism, um, but I think can be really, really instructive for us. Um, so he's writing this book, Truth and Tolerance, um, and he makes an interesting claim about the Christian life. Um, he says that the Christian lives in between two cultures, historical culture, our historically contingent time and place, um, and the culture of faith, the church. He says the Christian now lives within two cultural entities, in his historical culture and in the new one of faith, which mix and mingle in him. This existing together will never be a complete synthesis. It brings with it the need for continuing process of reconciliation and purification. Faith is not a kind of free radical looking for a cultural home. If it were, various cultures would thus, so to speak, provide faith with its cultural body. Faith would, in that case, live only through borrowed cultures. So I was looking at my book when I pulled this quote, and I had Voldemort written next to it. Because Voldemort lives through borrowed bodies, right? Professor Quirrell is inhabited by Voldemort so that he can act and try to kill Harry Potter. Um, so above all, so this can be taken off, on and off, stripped on and off. Above all, none of these borrowed cultural forms would mean anything to anybody um, to people living in any of the others. Universality would become ultimately a fiction. Thinking like this is basically Manichaean. It reduces culture to mere interchangeable embodiment and faith to dematerialize into mere spirit, ultimately lacking in reality. So I think this is helpful for our conversation, even though it on its surface it has nothing to do with it, um, in two ways. Um, he's really wary of the kind of interpretation of faith that that makes it into a pure idea or thought or feeling. Um, and he wants to say that there's this constant synthesis happening both within the individual person and within the ecclesial community of integration that requires pruning and discovering of new gifts and requires discernment. Um, I think he speaks to our present subject in two ways. There isn't a pure idea of femininity like floating out there in the ether, waiting to come and inhabit a female body. Um, that's a dematerialized idea of femininity. Being a woman, and being a man for that matter, is always going to be embedded in a certain time and place. That's what it means to be embodied. Um, and within certain relationships and cultural structures. So the body isn't just an interchangeable reality. It comes with its own history, 
In every sphere I go to, I bring with, my, with it my history, my body, my memories, my feelings, my spazziness. Um, so an example of this that's not gender related is like a white person cannot become a person of color just by asserting it to be the fact because they do not share in that history and that reality of a lived experience. And we saw this sort of play out a few years ago um, out on the West Coast. So there's this constant synthesis going on. So we're going to turn now to look at one attempt uh, at synthesizing culture and the culture of faith. So media, Catholic and otherwise, I think gives women and men very specific scripts about what it means to be a woman. Um, and some messaging is very straightforward, and some messaging is more oblique. So to get us started, I want to read to you this 1929 Kellogg's all-brand ad. Um, and I want you to think about what is this ad trying to get you to do or think, and what are the attending like bundles of things it associates this cereal with, OK? Romance never left their home. <laughs> Through the years, her husband adored her. But such devotion was easy to explain. She had those possessions which women know are priceless. Sparkling eyes, lovely skin, a radiant manner, charms that health alone can give. Isn't it a pity that countless men and women who strive for such health and beauty do not realize why they are so unsuccessful? Many have constipation, but don't know it. <laughs> they are only aware of what are often the effects. Sallow skin, dull eyes, fatigue. But constipation can be safely relieved and prevented. Thousands of women, men too, have freed themselves from bodily toxins. They've learned that their systems need roughage regularly. And they have found this necessary roughage in Kellogg's All Brand. OK, so what is being sold to you? Cereal. Cereal. Kellogg's All Brand. It's going to relieve your constipation, and it's going to um, make you beautiful. And there's also an idea of marriage that's embedded in this ad, too, because in the early part of this, uh, the 20th century, marriage is moving from a more economic, character-based encounter that's local, that's familial, to this idea of romance. And you have to keep the romance alive by eating Kellogg's All Brand to make your husband happy. So we have shifting notions of marriage that are called upon in order to sell you this product. So I want to look at two ads that I found in Catholic media for women. Um, and I want to think about what are the sort of oblique things that we're supposed to consume and what are the obvious things. Um, so this first ad, glittery eyeliner is going to be your new favorite simple feminine makeup look. It's for Revlon eyeliner. It was a story. It wasn't an ad. It was a story in a media site I came across. This makeup trick is a surefire way to make your everyday look ultra feminine and ethereal. And I will, disclosure, I want this eyeliner now. So I'm going to critique it, but after spending the last two weeks with it, I'm like really tempted to go to CVS and buy it. Because I want to be ultra feminine and ethereal, even when I'm falling off my bike. Okay, 
So the obvious point of consumption is eyeliner. But what is this telling us about being a woman in the church? It's calling on the same standards of beauty that sort of popular culture calls upon. So it's telling us that to be Catholic is to be beautiful. There's an implicit definition in here of what it means to be feminine. It's individuating. So the woman here is featured without community, without institution, without anybody else in the frame. Um, and that's a technique called ego expressivism in um, advertising, where you do a really a close up on the face um, to abstract the person from social institutions. And it started um, in the early part of the 20th century. So what does glittery eyeliner, this is my question, have to do with the practice of the faith? I'm fairly certain that when Paul talks about crucifying the flesh, he's not imagining ethereal eyeliner from Revlon. Um, another article on this site talked about weddings um, and how to get like a simple updo for your wedding day which I also want to try now, even though I'm not getting married. Um, weddings are a popular topic in both Catholic and non-Catholic women's media. There's a whole industry around it. And they're really important. I'm not here to bash weddings. Weddings are important. They're important culturally, and they're important sacramentally. But an article on hairstyling doesn't speak to the meaning of being a Christian planning a wedding. You know, and I can probably get better hair tips in some of the more mainstream magazines like Glamour and Vogue and Goop, which is Gwyneth Paltrow's lifestyle blog that I didn't know about until I saw Parks and Rec. Okay. Um, but I can't, I can't, from those, I can't get like, how do you navigate planning a wedding in light of Catholic social teaching? Or how do you practice the works of mercy in the context of marriage? So let's look at our next ad. Um, we have scripture in this one. That's awesome. We have similar oblique messages that being a woman in the church means you're pretty, you're young. Um, if you love Jesus, you'll be bestowed with beautiful hair and flowers. Um, and this past Sunday at Mass, a uh, uh, the priest described a 27-year-old woman in Haiti who has elephantitis. Um, and apparently, those who suffer with elef from elephantitis uh, emit a terrible odor. So you'd be able to smell, if, if I were her, you'd be able to smell me from the back of the room. It leads to social isolation, et cetera. It's incredibly painful. Where is her place? Where's her place? Where's her radiance? She looks to the Lord. She's Catholic. She prays. But is there a place for her in a concept of women in the church displayed in these ads? There is in the Psalms, because in the Psalms, the same Psalm that this uh, excerpt is taken from says, the Lord's face is against evildoers to wipe out their memory from the earth. The righteous cry out, the Lord hears. He rescues them from all their afflictions. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those whose spirit is crushed. These words have to apply to her as well. Her radiance has to be included. 
So the messages that we're getting from this really great attempt to try to synthesize our historical culture and our culture of faith um, are really not so different from a lot of the messages we receive um, on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, and so like being a single person, you see that there, there might be something wrong with you. Maybe you really do need that glittery eyeliner because then you'll finally find a husband. Um, and maybe you should also be thinner and prettier and better read and um, look more ethereal. So the messages are, are there. And I'm not saying women have to stop wearing makeup. I'm wearing makeup. Um, and I'm not trying to condemn these kinds of publications, but I do think we need to be attentive to like, what their substructure does and communicates and their limitations. So let's turn to women in the church. And on your handout, I think we have three places where we can start thinking really productively about this. The first is creation and resurrection. Um, in creation, we have two passages from Genesis. God created mankind in his, in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then from Genesis 2, the Lord God then built the rib he had taken from the man into a woman. When he brought her to the man, he said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. So in creation, we see the creation of men and women as sort of this original diversity in the human race that's ordered to sociality, to relationship, to community. We also hear that we are given to ourselves in some ways prior to us even being aware of that by the families we grow up in, by the schools we go to, the communities we inhabit. And then looking at the resurrection, you'll see this is an icon of the Anastasis. In the early church, there were really a lot of, there's a lot of interest in women's bodies. Um, and would women be raised as women? Lots of debate about this. Um, there were those who held that because women were inferior to men, they would be raised as men, or that there would be a genderless resurrection of the body. Um, Saint Augustine, You'll see that Adam and Eve are being pulled out of the grave as Adam and Eve, male and female, as they were created. Um, St. Augustine says, of course, women will be part of the bodily resurrection. Um, he offers these words. And there's an extended passage where he links um, the resurrection of the body to the sacramentality of the church. So he says, some people suppose that women will not keep their sex in the resurrection. But they say they will rise again as men. For my part, I feel that theirs is more sens the, the more sensible opinion who have no doubt that there will be both sexes in the resurrection. So for Augustine, embodied gender difference has both natural meaning and sacramental meaning. Because the, the woman uh, taken from the rib is the church being taken from the side of Christ who hangs on the cross. Another really good place to start is women in the scripture. Um, I TA'd for a class in 
um, Foundations of Theology once and encountered a young woman who's like, the Bible is patriarchal. Well, yeah, in some cases, there are some terrible things written about lots of people. Um, but women act in the Bible, and they act a lot and in different spheres. Um, neither scripture nor tradition speaks univocally about women, and I actually think this is a gift. Um, in the Bible, we encounter a diverse group of women who are, whose historical situations uh, move the story of salvation forward. They are not passive onlookers. They lead the people of God, not as men, but as women. Um, and so one great example is Sarah, Abraham's wife. Uh, she casts Hagar and her son Ishmael out. Abraham really actually doesn't want to do this at all. But Sarah has total control over the domestic sphere. This is her area. And God tells Abraham to obey your wife. Do whatever she asks of you. This is her sphere of influence. Miriam and Deborah both lead their people in different ways. Miriam in praise after the exodus. Deborah, um, in a way that's probably more uncomfortable for us as moderns, uh, she leads her people in battle um, and defeats the Canaanites and drives them out by having a tent stake driven into the head of the Canaanite leader. So we have leadership in the public sphere. And then we have Mary. I mean, we could multiply these images. We could talk about Eve, Rebecca, Ruth, Esther, Judith, Naomi, Tamar, Rahab, Ada, Hannah, in the New Testament, Priscilla, Lydia, Mary Magdalene, Martha and Mary, uh, Anna, Elizabeth. We have many, many women who speak to us in many different um, registers throughout the Bible. And we have, of course, we have Mary as both the archetypal woman and the archetypal disciple for men and women. She is the first disciple, the first to hear the word and to do it. Her yes is the most significant one in the Bible. Abraham, when God is calling him, is like running around saying, yes, I'm here. Here I am. Yes, I will take my son to the mountain. Yes, I will go and leave my homeland. And Mary's yes, let it be done to me according to your word in my body, in my flesh is the most significant yes in salvation history. And she moves John's gospel forward. It's Mary who, who draws her son's attention. They're out of wine. And she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. At this wedding feast, which is inaugurating the eschatological wedding feast, the wedding feast of salvation. And finally, I think the ecclesial community is a really important place for us to think about gender, women's leadership, and women's role in the church. Gender is a constitutive part of everyone's identity, one's personal identity. It's not exhaustive, but it is constitutive. And to be affirmed as a woman is not to be reduced to being a woman. In the New Testament, women are also spoken of in many various ways, some very straightforward. Um, be subject to your husbands. Others, not so straightforward. 
So in Galatians, when we hear there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, why is this? Does everyone become male? Does everyone become genderless? Of course not, but everyone comes to Christ as they are. And the whole system of like paterfamilias that's set up in the New Testament where the male is the head of the household gets reordered under Christ. So now we have a hierarchy of service. So the, the one who leads the house is the one who is to serve. We have women acting as leaders, as prophets. Um, and we see that gender is related to their function in the community, but it is not equivalent. So there's a larger matrix in, in the Pauline community, for sure, um, of the gifts of the spirit and the needs of communal life. And I think some of our greatest resources for thinking about women in the church are the saints. Um, because here we see men and, men and women who are synthesizing. They're doing this, synth this synthesis between the culture of faith and the culture of their historical time. And if you were able to name, I think one of the opening activities was name as many female saints as you can. There can be as many female saints as there have been women in history. So one really important piece of our conversation is thinking about where we are anchoring our point of, I think, beginning. Are we anchoring it in the works of mercy, in the cross, in this self-donation and gift? Are we anchoring it in the tradition and the church, in the Eucharist? And this, I think, will allow women to carve a path to show the way of greater uh, leadership. Women do wonderful things in the church already, um, both in public and private spheres. Mother Teresa didn't serve as the chancellor of a diocese, but she is a leader in the church. Um, and we have women who are chancellors in dioceses, who are trusted um, resources for the uh, men and women of faith. So I think we'll, we'll close here with this quote from Benedict who says, I believe that women themselves, with their energy and their strength, with their superiority, with what I'd call their spiritual power, will know how to make their own space. And we will have to try and listen to God so as not to stand in their way. I just know we, we were on the first question for a really long time and for my husband and I we have three daughters and a son but for our, our daughters one is um, eight years old now and is really interested in um, what she sees in the media and you know already wanting to try immodest clothing and all that kind of stuff and I think that that's a huge deficiency that we have um, with our really young people I think that they start to form their idea of feminism really, really, really young, and they look to the older generation for what to do, and then suddenly they're 13 and 15 years old, and then they have hormones too, and then they, they only have what they built on as eight-year-olds yeah. to you know, create their image, and, and so I'm wondering, you know, what do we do for our very youngest girls to help them through that? So this would be a great question for other mothers. Um, 
I'm happy to take a stab at it, but does anyone have experience doing this with their daughters? Um, so my mom just like didn't let me do anything I wanted to do. Um, <laughs> and things have turned out mostly okay. Uh, so I think that, I think you're touching upon like a really important cultural trend is that, um, so I'm an academic, so there's a book I like, um, called The Disappearance of Childhood. And it's about how children are entering adult life earlier and earlier. Um, and adults are actually not becoming full adults anymore. Um, and so I, I see this with my sister and her niece. She has to make explicit decisions that, she, that like her two-year-old is not going to wear certain clothing um, because it's adult clothing made for two-year-olds. And why do you need that? Um, so I think some of it is decision making in the home, um, but I also realize how hard that is. Um, my sister doesn't let her children have phones, and she has a 10-year-old, and she is, I mean, like that, she's constantly getting, mom, why can't I, mom, why can't I, mom, why can't I? Um, and everybody else a lot, you know, around her doesn't support that. I do think creating um, networks of mothers, so here's one thing I heard from um, a mother in our community, she met with her other mothers and her son's friend group, and they all decided that this was the policy on video games. So that when they went to birthday parties, they had a half hour of video games, and that was it. And everyone enforced it. Um, so I think finding networks of mothers um, and parents who you can have those conversations with about shared values and cultivating that kind of community is essential. Because doing it alone is exhausting. Hello. Hi. Do you have a short answer to the question that a more secular person might ask that, like, aren't women in the church marginalized or, you know, the, the typical, like, question yeah. that people might ask? Um, I don't really have a short answer to that. <laughs> um, but that's sort of, okay, so in my family, we're Lutheran and Catholic. Um, well, I'm Catholic. My family has Lutheran people in it. Um, and, you know, I'm, I do get questions about, like, why this and Catholic teaching and why that and why do you not like women? Um, and so I think that, again, I think that the way we're defining what leadership is um, can be challenged. What is leadership in the church and where can and should women ought to have more of a voice in almost every sphere um, of church life. We should have more of a presence and a voice. I wanted to be the first female cardinal. You can see I like being like the first breaking through barriers things. The first female cardinal because technically a woman can be a cardinal um, according to canon law. And then I was like, oh, being a cardinal means you're an administrator. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> um, so I think asking those questions about what do you what do you define as a leadership position for that person you're in conversation with, and then helping like with my family, uh, sexism gets reinscribed in any sort of matrix. Um, it's it's going to happen. It happened like Lutherans ordain women, um, and I. I was in a class with a Lutheran uh, professor, and he said, you know, like, there's still sexism here. It's not like you ordained women and now there's not sexism anymore. Um, and so I, I don't, 
I think that what we really need to be thinking about is how can we heal these, the relationship between um, men and women and come to a fuller understanding of the human person and what true leadership is and what um, our relationship to one another is, both as women to women and women with men. And I don't have a short answer. Sorry, that's not a short answer. Um, but I do think sort of asking people to define what they're, what they're asking about is a really helpful way to start because it gets people thinking about what their actual question is. Um, in your talk, I don't think you ever answered the question that you asked all, all of us to answer. What makes a woman a woman? And what, decide, what are feminine styles of holiness? Yeah, I sure didn't. Um, <laughs> so I think that these, the three sort of uh, points that I laid out, there's, a, there's certainly historical, uh, cultural contingencies. There is like a woman has different biological and hormonal functions than men. I think that has to be an essential part of what makes a woman a woman. Um, it's not the only thing that makes a woman a woman, but it is sort of the building block. Um, I, a woman can carry life, a man cannot. Like that is not biologically possible. So I think that that is an important starting place that often gets sort of effaced in our um, conversations about gender. Feminine styles of holiness could be as many, I mean, there are as many as there are women who are saints. Because any woman who is striving for holiness is living a feminine style of holiness. Um, so that's sort of where you have the communion of saints, you have us striving to be saints, um, to be like Mary, whether we're men or women, and listening to the word and responding. Um, so wherever you see a female saint, you see a feminine style of holiness. Okay. Thanks for your talk, Jess. Um, another question from your sheet, can a Catholic be a feminist? Can you speak um, your experience of that question and what from feminism would you say, let's really keep this and what are the things that, that we need to rethink and be, be cautious of? Yeah, so if you ask me in college, can a Catholic be a feminist? I'd be like, no. Um, but I do think a Catholic can be a feminist. I consider myself a feminist. Um, I do think that, like, for example, in our places of work, like, I don't think a lot of places have figured out how to um, welcome women who want to live the church's teaching on sexuality in marriage and also want to work. What are structures that we need to put in place to make that possible? Because that should be possible. If we're affirming both things, that has to be made possible institutionally. And that's an institutional um, change that I think needs to happen. Um, I think an essential part for being a feminist in, in the church is this idea of difference and equality. So like, I am not going to do this things the same way a man is going to do them. Uh, necessarily, um, but that we, our approaches are equally valued um, in the workplace, in the home, in the social sphere. I also think an essential part is being pro-life, um, and that's where I see a real difference between like what I 
conceive of as a Catholic feminism, and you don't have to be Catholic to be pro-life, but this idea of lifting up and valuing the human dignity of everybody. Um, so those would say, that, that's what I would say is like the essential parts of being a Catholic and being a feminist. Um, so not totally in the liberal feminist vein, but taking like what, what was good there. There was a call to say like women have gifts that they might want to use outside the home and women have, um, want to um, have a voice in society in this particular way. And how do we help women be valued equally um, to men while respecting also that men and women are different? in fundamental ways, and how do we think about our functions in society according to those differences? Um, so that would be my long, again, answer. Um, you spoke to the, uh, the number of saints and forms of feminism that exist out there. Just personally, who are a couple saints outside the Blessed Mother, of course, who you uh, look to for um, feminine virtue? So I put them on the sheet, the ones I really like. I mean, I like a lot more than this. But um, so I, I thought it was sort of essential to show like women inter like this idea of community. Um, because none of us as saints sort of like in our individuated, apart from society, autonomous selves. Um, so I, Mother Teresa, I think, for many women, is sort of this icon of service to the poorest of the poor, um, that nurturing care that attends to those who are on the margins and who are the weakest, um, that the Holy Father keeps calling us to, to the margins. Um, Dorothy Day, I just, she's not a saint. Um, in the church, but she is um, vener blessed, venerable, servant of God. She's servant of God. Um, and I think she embodies, like, for, for American women, like, the, the real opportunity and challenge and struggle of being a saint in sort of modern America. I know that she, she lived in the 20s, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, but she wasn't afraid to speak out against things that she saw as injustices. Um, and she also loved the church. She started every day with mass. She said the mass is the work of the day, and she cared for the poor in, in the community of the Catholic worker. Um, Joan of Arc, just because she's like the Deborah of her own time, um, she's doing something that is like very, quote unquote, gender nonconforming, and this is what she's called to, and she's doing it as a woman. Um, in the church and for the church. And then Mary Magdalene, who I think an essential thing for me to always remember is that our lives are meant to point to the Eucharist and are meant to point to the cross of Christ and the love poured out there. Um, there are lots of other women who I think are fantastic. I love Rose of Lima. Other questions or things that came up in your table conversations? Thank you for sharing, by the way. It was great hearing from you. Um, I guess my question 
one of my questions was how would you engage like being a catholic feminist how do you engage like the the cultural femininity um or the cultural feminism and like how do we obviously there's like these social things that need to change in society and like um there's things that like feminists are doing that are good but there's also like things that we don't agree with but i feel like right now there's just this like huge separation and like yeah. you know in between them um so i guess like how do we engage that culture and then in a way like kind of like reclaim feminism not have it be this like there's feminists and then there's catholic feminists but have it be like feminist feminism should be someone who is like pro-women which is essentially like pro-life you know right you know what i mean so yeah, how do you engage that? Yeah, so I mean, I think an essential piece of that is dialogue, like find the people who disagree with you and enter into dialogue with them. Um, there are a lot of points of contact, I think, between uh, various kinds of feminism, um, even though I would hold very different um, core values than somebody like, name your radical feminist. Um, but we both are coming to the table um, deeply concerned about women. And so I think that one thing is like identify the people in your community who um, you don't agree with and build relationship with them. One thing that I find is like I can't, as me here in South Bend, change national policy. Um, but I can advocate in my place of work. And I can enter into conversation with people who I know I disagree with. Like, my family members and I have the same conversations again and again and again and again and again. Um, so I think that that's essential, and that's an essential part of cultural shift is witness and that willingness to be a witness, um, even though people might think you're crazy, because um, sometimes people think I'm crazy, um, for, for the beliefs I hold. So I think dialogue's essential. I think advocating in your sphere of in influence is essential. Um, and I think um, being a public voice in any way that you can, whether that's engaging in writing letters to the editor, engaging in local politics, engaging in any number of different uh, public spheres to sort of bring both people together who can have conversations about these things, but also putting ourselves in positions to change the realities we want to see changed. I have a number of women who I want to run for local city council. So if any of you want to run for local city council, you should do it. All right, we've got time for one more question. Any takers? Hello. Um, so I'm wondering, given that um, even within the church there's plenty of just pain given how things have been lived out and um, various types of leadership that, you know, haven't been um, been lived out, kind of all the pain that comes from the imperfection in, um, in how we attend to gender. How do we kind of affirm that pain and pay attention to it, but also not lose sight of um, of the theology around gender and of the like intelligence of um, 2,000 years of the church kind of trying right. to live out this vocation. 
Um, so I worked on a Native American reservation for five years um, in my early 20s. And there was a lot of residual pain from how Native people have been treated, uh, both by the US government and by uh, the church. I think an essential piece of that um, is helping people to articulate what that pain is. A lot of us carry pain around that's unarticulated, um, but we know it's there. So I think the ability to be able to have these spaces um, where people can ask questions, um, and ask questions not in an effort to tear down the church, but in like an effort to truly understand. And I found more, like I found that sometimes those, those spaces don't seem to exist, where you can ask a question that isn't intended to be um, malicious, but is really intended to help, uh, to help you understand better, to help bring about healing. So I think that that's sort of an essential piece of that. I think that processes of reconciliation can be helpful. Um, I also think that, so for example, we all know what's happening in the church currently um, with the revelations that have come out in the last week and a half. Um, we need brave laity, right, who are willing to, to call our leaders, our shepherds, to account um, and to, uh, to be the good shepherd that, that we know that uh, Jesus um, wants them to be. So I've been using the example of Japan a lot in the last week. Like, the laity can, can wait for good shepherds. Like, Japan, the Japanese waited 500 years for a priest to come back. Um, we can wait and carry the faith. Um, we need compassionate um, leaders in our church who are willing to have those hard conversations and make those hard decisions. Um, and we need spaces to be able to safely talk about wounds without being, it being assumed that there's a hidden agenda to undermine the church. Thank you. Thank you.